name is Dr. Chayaliba Kobernek, and I'm excited to welcome you to the Mindful Woman Mothers podcast. I'm a clinical psychologist and a mother to four delicious girls. Here, we'll explore what it means to be a mindful woman through every stage of motherhood. Welcome. On today's podcast, I am so excited to be speaking with Dr. Stu Fishbein. Dr. Stu has been practicing obstetrics since 1986. While well-trained in the standard medical model of obstetrics, he had the respect and vision to support the midwifery model of care and served as a backup consultant to many home and birthing center midwives for 25 years. He has spoken internationally on breach and vaginal birth after C-section and has appeared in many documentaries and in YouTube videos discussing birth choices and respect for patient autonomy and decision-making. Dr. Fishbein now practices community-based birthing and works directly with home birthing midwives to offer hope for those women who prefer and respect a natural birthing environment and cannot find supportive practitioners for VBAC, twin, and breech deliveries. He's an outspoken advocate of informed decision-making, the midwifery model of care, and human rights in childbirth. Dr. Fishbein still actively cares for pregnant women while teaching hands-on seminars on breech birth around the globe. He has the goals of improving collaboration amongst the differing professions in the birthing world and the reteaching of the core skills such as breech and twin vaginal birth that make the specialty of obstetrics unique. And that's why I'm really excited for us to be chatting today. So can you share with us about your model for maternity care, how you see yourself within that system? Well, it's been an evolution for me. I, you know, I trained as a typical medical student resident in the medical model, but it was, again, I'm, I've been out of residency now for 35 years. So I finished in 1986 and the, and the country was a bit different back then. Um, they were still teaching breach and twin deliveries as something that's a core skill. Putting forceps on was a core skill. If you came out of residency and didn't know how to do those things, it was felt that, you know, you probably were not trained adequately. And then, so that's how, that's my whole background. But I was also very much an advocate for the medical model of birth. I was trained in the, in the image that, that pregnancy is an illness and needs to be, uh, you know, treated and observed and intervened upon because something could go wrong at any moment. And even that was going on back then, that fear-based thing was going on. And so, you know, I came out of residency thinking that that I knew everything there was to know about birthing. And what's true is I knew pretty much everything there was to know about birthing for about 20% of women. And the 80% who had nothing wrong with them, I really didn't know anything. Because we don't, we, you know, we learn disease in residency and how to treat it. And normal things just kind of come and go. And we 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 get called by the nurse to come in and catch a baby, write the orders, and then leave. And you know, generally not, and there's no follow-up at all that's sort of the way you learn. And so when you go into private practice, you do you have to do, because of the, the way the model is set up, you have to sort of do volume or shift mentality in order to have a better life or at least make a living. And so you don't develop long relationships with a lot of your clients. A lot of your clients you took care of during their pregnancy are delivered by one of your partners on call. So you're not even there. You're delivering people you've never met before. Uh, the nurses are doing all the care and you just come in at the very end. You never really watch a woman labor from start to finish. Uh, I was asked early in my, uh, after I finished my residency to be a backup uh, transport physician for some midwives in my community. And I did it not because I thought midwives, midwifery and home birthing was smart, probably thought it was foolish actually, but I did it because um, I was trying to make money. I was just trying to build a practice. That's how you did things in those days. In those days, you didn't come out and get a job working for an HMO, you know, um, a nine to five job or um, being on call once every seventh night or something like that, which of course for lifestyle stuff is so much better um, than what we did. But the satisfaction rate, I think is probably a bit less in the professional aspect of things. And I began to see a different way of doing things by, by talking to their clients, meeting their clients. And these were all clients that were being transferred from home. So they all had clients that already had issues because they, their home birth had not been successful. And we ended up with um, uh, learning that, that these people are not uneducated. These people are actually 
have investigated things much more than my own clients did. They, they were well-informed and I began to just see a different way of doing things. And um, slowly but surely, the things that I like to do were being uh, restricted in the hospital settings. The hospitals became more and more restrictive. They banned midwives, they banned VBACs, they banned breach delivery. Everybody was sectioning all twins. Um, I could I could talk about this for a really long time, but I'll just, in, in summary, it came to a point where I had to make a choice between fighting the hospital to keep my privileges and to keep doing the things I'm doing or going off into the home birthing world. And, it was a it was a, a a leap of faith that I you know to let go of the rock in the middle of the stream and just not know what's downstream, but it turned out that now I'm sort of doing and advocating for the things that that women deserve, which is the options. And if the hospitals aren't going to offer them, women are going to seek them someplace. And what I would tell my brethren in the in the OB community is, you know, you need to start to listen to what your clients want as opposed to having an algorithm and dictating to them how they have to fit into it. Mm-hmm. So now I do home birthing with midwives. And I don't know that I could ever go back working. I don't know that a hospital would have me anyway, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I could ever go back to a rigid system where everyone has to have an IV and everyone has to be monitored and everyone has to have clear liquids only and they can't move and they, you know, they have to deliver on their back and they baby has to go to the nursery for a certain amount of time. And, you know, I mean, these things are changing slowly in the hospital, but they're not changing fast enough. And then we had a real setback this past year with coronavirus and the lockdown. And uh, it kind of showed hospitals, not blaming them, but I'm saying it showed how hospitals really think about birth. They think about it as a, like a medical condition, like having your gallbladder removed. And, and if you're coming in to have your gallbladder removed, why do you need a doula and a support person and your husband in the room with you? Mm-hmm. And so they took, they took women in labor and they isolated them. And it's like the, and put a mask on them and put a mask on them. And sometimes they, you know, they separated them from their baby if they had a fever or anything like that. And, and no, no, much, you know, they, no one knew what to do, but eventually we knew what to do and they did it and they kept doing it anyway. So it, all these hospitals that were scrambling to have uh, this label of mother baby friendly, um, they, they went out the window yeah. the minute, the minute COVID uh, came in play. And so, I'm just advocating for common sense. I'm advocating. I look at there's there's no ideal way to do things. Hospitals are great when you have a problem. Mm-hmm. Home birth is great when you don't. It's hard to know always what's going to turn into a problem and what isn't. But I would say very clearly that in my experience, which is rather unique, that you don't see the rapid sudden deterioration of fetal status when you're not meddling with mother nature, when you're not starving a woman, immobilizing her, having her numb for 12, 12 hours with an epidural, hyperstimulated with Pitocin, you're gonna see that baby that de- decompensates and needs an emergency C-section. And then they're gonna to say to you, well, what would you have done if this had happened at home? And nobody knows enough to say, well, look at them and say, well, you know, this wouldn't have happened at home. This is kind of an iatrogenic uh, cascade of events. Yeah. And can you speak? Can you speak more specifically? I I I totally agree with you with the cascade of interventions and um and totally atrogenic. But help help us understand when you're talking about you know giving birth on your back, separating mother baby. Why are these things problems? What what do they do for the setting setting mothers up, setting um, our bodies up to 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 have problems? Well, you have to go back and look at how nature had designed um, uh, the human female, which, which we are mammals to give birth. And so I'll back up and I'll just say, when any other mammal gives birth, she goes off to a quiet place and she goes off by herself. We are designed to give birth by ourselves, all right? You know, our higher brain makes us more susceptible to fear and anxiety. And we think of too many things and our cognitive brain then screws up our primitive brain. But we're designed to do this by ourselves, And when a mammal is laboring, if they're uncomfortable, they move, they pace, they roll, they get up, they lie down, they do whatever they need to do. And if they're hungry, they do something really remarkable. They eat, okay? <laughs> if they're thirsty, they drink. And if they're, um, uh, and, you know, and when they're ready to give birth, they, they, you know, they will lie down or stand up and the baby will fall into the dirt or the cat litter or the hay or the sawdust or wherever they are out in the wild. It's not a sterile procedure. No one rushes in to cut the cord and no one ever separates the baby from the mother. 
And that's how nature does it. And yes, some things can go wrong and that sort of thing can happen. Um, but when you mess with that process, when a predator approaches, when little kids run into the room, when there's a cat laboring under the bed or something like that, the animal will put out adrenaline and other things, but put out adrenaline. Adrenaline will stop contractions. The mammal will get up and do its fight or flight thing. And of course, in this case, it will always be flight. I mean, rarely will it be fight. And they'll run away. And only and so labor stops and they run away. And only when labor, only when they feel safe will labor start again. So that's how nature does it. So now we can we can transfer that to the your question about, about laying on your back and having an IV and being interrupted and something like that. Just think about what we do to the human female. And then think about would you ever do that to your cat or your dog or your horse or a deer or anybody else? You, you would never make them move from one place to another. You would never have them change clothes. You would never have them pee in a cup or answer questions about how many stairs they have in their house or, or what did your grandmother die from while they're contracting every three minutes. You would never um, lay them flat on their back and put belts in the, in, in, on them to strap them in place so you could check the baby out. You would never um, ask, again, interrupt them several times. You would never have your mother and your husband and maybe your sister sitting in chairs staring at you. If the cat's laboring, you tell the kids to leave, you tell the kids to leave it alone. You don't sit there and watch the cat laboring. That's not, that's not what we do. But in, but in the medical model, it's all about sort of avoiding the, the problem, but by trying to do all these things to protect against the problem, you're causing a, a malfunction in nature's way of doing things and you're causing dysfunction. And so it's not natural for all women to want to lay on their back to give birth. Some do, it's perfectly fine. Lithotomy position is perfectly fine for some women, but not all women. Um, some women want to eat when they're pregnant. Other women are throwing up all the time. They don't want to eat when they're pregnant, but you need to give them nourishment. So some women may need an IV, other women don't. We can do that at home, by the way. We can give IVs at home and we, and we do sometimes. But, um, and they want, they want their support person there because they need to stay in their primitive brain. The minute they come out of their primitive brain, labor is dysfunctional. It's, very, it's analogous in some ways to breathing or digestion, Kaya, because if you're breathing- Or going to the bathroom. Or going to the bathroom, yes. But if you're breathing or, di or digesting food, you don't have to think about it. Mm -hmm. But if your cognitive brain gets involved and say you have a test this morning, Mm -hmm. or you have to give a speech this afternoon, all right? Your heart rushes, you might hyperventilate, you might get a little stomach cramps. You, that's, your, that's your cognitive brain overriding your normal functions. And the same thing happens in labor. When you're, when you're surrounded by fear or anxiety, or people, or even if you're not, but there people are, or disturbances, the loudspeakers going off in the hospital, or the little machine keeps losing the baby's heartbeat so the alarm keeps going off, or your IV gets plugged and the alarm goes off, all these things bring you back to reality and take you out of that place where nature has designed mammals to go to optimize labor. And so we end up with things like an 80 to 90% epidural rate. And we end up with those people on epidurals almost all get Pitocin, not all of them, but almost all of them get Pitocin because the, what does the epidural do? It spaces the contractions out a little bit. We end up with a cesarean section rate that went from 5% 50 years ago to 30% or more now in this country. In some countries like Brazil and South Africa, it's 80%, all right? Now we know, we know, and everybody knows, the doctors know that, that nature has a design for babies coming through the vagina. It's good for their lungs. It's good for their microbiome. Uh, it's good for bonding. It's good for delayed cord clamping. It's good for all the things that nature would do, all right? But yet it's not that important because the medical model has this idea that mother and baby are not a unity, that mother belongs to the OB department. Once baby's out, it belongs to the pediatric department. You know, I'm simplifying here and I'm not yeah. being, not trying to be pejorative. I'm not trying to, to badmouth everything. I'm just trying to point out the, the flaws in the system. It's not the people in the system. The people get stuck in the, their cogs in the mm -hmm. world, mm -hmm. right? They're really good people that go into nursing, that go into obstetrics, that go into midwifery. But sometimes, you know, the system is what, what, is, is flawed and what we need to do if we wanna do better. If people are, are nervous about home birthing and they want, and they wonder why women are seeking it out and they're not seeking it out that much, it's one, one and a half percent 
of people in the country. You know, and the problems we have with obstetrics in our country is not because 1% of women are giving birth at home. It's because 99% are giving birth in the hospital and the, and the you know, the, the infant mortality rate and the things, I mean, they're small numbers, but they're, they're terrible compared to other first world countries. Yeah. And, you know, we don't rank very well. We're like 40th or 39th or some you know, terrible number when we should be doing much better than that. Yeah. So it's the model that's the problem. And we need to understand that, that there's no guarantee when you go to the hospital, you're going to have a good outcome. All right. There's no guarantee if you have it at home, you're going to have a good outcome. But there's a more likely guarantee that you're going to be able to labor as nature intended at home, which will lead to a good outcome and more a higher success rate of vaginal birth and a higher patient satisfaction rate. Mm-hmm. And, and, and less questioning of, you know, was my autonomy stepped on? Did I, did I get skewed informed consent? Did I do something at the hospital because I felt pressure to do it? Um, these are things I'm not, these are not me talking. These are every client I see who's at a hospital birth feels as well. You can comment on your own. I mean, if you, you know, that's where you want to go with this. I mean, you, you have your own story, but, but um, so that, so that's, a long answer to your question about the hospital model and what's wrong with it, because it doesn't accept how nature has designed the human mammal to, uh, to give birth. So I really was interested in what you said about, about allowing the primitive brain to take over because this is a natural, a physiological process, just like any other physiological process, right? If if uh, somebody's having a panic attack, right? We don't tell them keep breathing quickly. <laughs> we don't tell them think a lot about all your problems. We say like kind of like distract yourself, think about something else, and kind of allow your body to do what it normally does. You don't have to think too hard to breathe. You don't have to think too hard to digest your food. These are natural processes. How do you? Not you. How how can a woman get into that space? How can she get into her primitive brain? when there's lights and pressure and counting contractions and yeah, you can't, you can't. I mean, interestingly enough, when I was a resident, I took care of two women in a coma. Okay. They both went into labor. All right. Obviously they couldn't push. They couldn't push. So when they got to complete, we put a vacuum on and we delivered the babies. But, but um, so that just tells you that, Labor is a non-thinking function of your body. Like, like we said, like, like you said, like going to the bathroom, you, you know, it's, it's when you think about it, that it screws it up. So what happens when, uh, you know, it's, it's impossible in that setting. It's remarkable that 67 to 70% of women in that setting will still have a vaginal birth. It's yeah. a testimony. To, it's a testimony to how good our system is. And, and again, there's a difference also between primips and multips, and maybe we'll get to that later on. But, but um, if you if you continue to you know to interfere with the the primitive brain by causing the cognitive brain to kick in, you are not going to be able to um, to have these better outcomes. So how do you do that? Well, the first thing I would say if I was a woman is I would not get my information from Facebook. Facebook groups. I mean, there are trolls that go on Facebook that have had a bad outcome or they know somebody had a bad outcome. And then they bash every woman that says, I did it naturally, or I did it at home, or I did it. And they, and they, so you've got to choose your sources carefully. You've got to surround yourself by people who are like-minded. If you decide that you want to have an unmedicated birth in the hospital and some your friends all had epidurals, and they're all telling you you're crazy, then you, you know, you basically need to sort of turn your phone off. Um, you need to have a practitioner, whether that be your midwife or your doctor, your OB, who supports your point of view. If every time you go in, you're feeling a little bit harassed or, or anxious about the visit, that, then you know what? Change practitioners. So right? how do find you somebody know? Like, find somebody who's like-minded. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess yeah. that's, that's my question. Getting into the primitive brain, even having, um, you know, even having a man in the space, how does that work with really getting into that? Brain? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question because obviously in the era of 
the current era we're in, we think that, you know, that a husband should be, you know, with you and, and be your support person and stuff like that. But that actually isn't how nature does it. No other mammal is, is there a male around. So Michelle O'Donnell, who people may know, um, Michelle is the French-speaking guy with, or the English-speaking guy with a French accent, like in the movie Business of Being Born, where they even had to put subtitles. <laughs> he's speaking English and they put subtitles in anyway, because it's really, he's got a thick accent. He's a lovely man. I, I don't know if, how he's doing. I haven't spoken to him in about a decade. Um, I've spoken he, to him a couple times. He's, he's good. <laughs> yeah. And, and he believes that the men have no business being around labor and that women shouldn't really have many support people around her either. I can tell a funny story once he was speaking in Los Angeles and he stayed with me at my apartment. So this, no, this had to be like five or six years ago. Okay. Because I was in that apartment then and he stayed with me and I went to a birth and I came back and he was still awake and he asked me about the birth and I said, Oh, it was beautiful. It's a water birth. And he goes, well, tell me about it. I said, well, the, the dad and mom were in the tub together and the doula was there. And then her mother was there. And then the photographer was there. And then me and the midwife were there. And we had, my student was there and he just starts rolling his eyes and laughing at me because there were eight, <laughs> I think about it, there were eight people in the room when she had the baby and nine after the baby came out. And so, uh, you know, he says, because she's a multip that it obviously works really well, but but he's right. He, you know, so there is this thing, but again, whatever a woman feels safe and, and, and because we are higher thinking creatures, some women feel safe for having their, their man around other women don't, and they should be able to vocalize that. And they don't, and they don't necessarily want to, but it's a very difficult thing that needs to be addressed during the um, prenatal care mm-hmm. about the man's role. Yeah. Because men are struggling with the idea that I'm going to be a father. How do I support this woman? You know, they're thinking about the financial aspect of things, the safety aspect of things. This is sort of what men do. And they really are, are all thumbs sometimes. And then when we, you combine that with the lockdown where fathers were considered non-essential personnel and not allowed in the room, um, that even that compounded it even more. Mm-hmm. But you need to surround yourself with, where you, with people that support you during the pregnancy that make you feel safe and nurtured. Um, Sarah Buckley likes to say safe, quiet, and unobserved is the Uh best way to be in labor. And I would say that safe and quiet during your prenatal care is also really important as is nutrition, exercise and all those stuff. But I'm just saying to be in the right mindset for labor, you have to remember that you can't be a mammal who's anxious. You can't be a mammal who's running from a forest fire. You can't be a mammal who's being chased by a predator. All right. Because labor will be dysfunctional. Absolutely. I can, I can give an example a woman will call her physician and say that I'm contracting every three minutes and he'll say, okay, come to the hospital. So she comes, she gets in her car and she drives to the hospital and they park the car and they walk in through the ER, through triage. And they, you know, they ask to change clothes and pee in a cup and do all the things that we talked about earlier. And they put them on the monitor and her contractors are now eight minutes apart. And people go, Oh, you've slowed down. It's mm-hmm. like, well, you're here, you're three centimeters because they've already done, they just did an unnecessary vaginal exam. <laughs> so you're three centimeters. Well, we might as well, let's just break your bag water. Since you're here already, you're two days beyond your due date. We'll just break it. Well, no, no. And they, they, they're, and they don't even think about why her contractions have slowed down. Mm-hmm. Now we know she's yeah. putting out adrenaline and yeah. other things, cortisol and other things that make it slow down. So what you need to tell this woman is go home. Yeah. Go back home or don't have her come in right away. One of the other things for people who, who decide they want a hospital birth because they're not ready for a home birth, all right, is to stay away from the hospital as long as possible. So you can even, even if you have to, besides hiring a doula, you can hire somebody called a monitrice, which is a, a midwife who comes to you in labor and helps you in labor. And the midwife can do medical things like take your blood pressure, take your vital signs, listen to the baby. Doulas are not allowed to do that. And then they can also do a, a, a vaginal exam if necessary to determine that, oh, you're making these grunting, pushing sounds. Let's just make sure, oh, you're eight centimeters. Okay, let's go to the hospital. As opposed to, oh, you're three centimeters. Let's get you in the tub or let's do something to help you, you know, get transitioned through this period of time that that you're having a hard time with because you're still in earlier early labor. Because mm-hmm. once you go to the hospital, it's it's innate upon the hospital's model to meddle. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's honestly, that that's all they're kind of set up to do. Like I said before, it's, it's just a cog in the wheel. It's not necessarily anybody's fault, but the hospital is only able to 
metal. What else they're supposed to do? The, the model, the model, the fiduciary model, of the hospital is to turn over the beds to move yeah. things along. No, exactly. I, I will say, I will say, listen, there are exceptions to every, every generalization. And there are many, many doctors and nurses who give women all the time they need. All right. I mean, I've known cases where I, I can't believe that you got a vaginal delivery, you know, 48 hours after you transferred into the hospital from a home birth and you got a vaginal birth that happens, but it, it's, it's not very common. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So, you know, look at, I, uh, again, this is not People think when I when I don't give an entire dissertation on all the risks and benefits of something that that we don't know the topic or we're not doing it. I, I've had some some real trolls lately on some twin posts on Facebook, which has been interesting because I post this, a beautiful picture of a, people having a twin birth at home, and then somebody will come on and say, "Well, you know, if they you you know you can't say that because mono mono twins and some mono die twins." It's really risky. And I go, well, yeah, it is. But this is not a lecture on chorionicity of pregnancy. And it's a it's a Facebook post. Well, you're gonna you're gonna give people the wrong idea. And I said, no, I'm gonna give people an idea that they should check this out. And I trust that their practitioner knows enough about chorionicity and everything else to to give them information and say, no, you're not a good candidate for a twin vaginal birth here or at home or anywhere else. All right, or you are. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so or that the women can make their own, make it, can make their own informed decision. A woman can read a, a post and, you know, decide what she wants to decide. Well, based people, on that. people have an ax to grind sometimes they've had a, like I said earlier, they've had a bad outcome mm-hmm. or they, they know someone who did and they're, you know, they're, they're frustrated. And so they, instead of having a constructive dialogue where you can respect each other's positions, it becomes, you know, sort of vit- vitriolic and, yeah. and, and, and those people, you don't respond. And then when you don't respond, it makes it, that makes them more angry. And if you do respond, it makes them more angry. So <laughs> you, really, you really have no way around that. So you just, you, you just try to put the information out there and you, and you, and the people that, that you want to, that you want to get that information, will get it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Back to this primitive brain idea. What is it like being a male physician in that space? Oh, well, for me, I've, I've learned a, a, a lot about my role at a birth outside of the hospital. My role is to give essentially reassurance that I'm in the house, but just, <laughs> but just, you know, it makes the, I've had a lot of mothers tell me afterwards that when I arrived or the husbands even tell me afterwards, when I arrived, the, the stress level went down because they knew that I was there, which is so gratifying to me. And I'm, you know, it's hard for me to tell you this, but this is, this you asked the question. But yeah. then my role is to not be in the room all the time. It's very rare. Occasionally, if the midwife is tired and she's sleeping or taking a rest, I'll go in and listen to the baby, or, you know, periodically and do the things that we do. But I'm not going to be there with every contraction. I'm not going to be rebozoing somebody or doing that. I'm usually, if they're in the bedroom, I'm in the living room on the couch with my headphones in. And uh, keeping my male energy, and I fully admit that I talk loudly. I have um, a very strong male energy, and that's reassuring when something goes wrong. All right, and I'm very, you know, I inside may be going 100 miles an hour, but outside, I've watched myself on video, and when I've had to do something that's been rather stressful, and I'm still doing my best to exude a calm demeanor because it's important again for everybody in the room um, to to know that that's okay and everything's okay and it's going to be okay and then you know there's no there's no better teacher than experience and I've been doing this for a long time now so you know even though you think you've seen everything you know you haven't seen everything I mean I just have always said that when twins deliver the placentas come out after the second twin all right always said that and then two weeks ago I had Somebody, the first twin came out and then there was a gush of blood. It's like, whoa, did, is the baby, is baby B's placenta separating? Is there a abruption or something like that? And no, baby A's placenta came out all by itself. So that was something I'd never seen happen before in, in 40, almost 40 years of, of doing that. So there's always things that you can learn um, by doing this. But, by, but, but you said, my male energy is better not being in the room unless... That's what the laboring mother wants. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's what makes her come down. Then 
I will just sit on a ball in the corner of the room or on the floor and I'll just sit there. Mm-hmm. And I don't really talk much because, again, I do have sort of a loud voice. And even when I whisper, it's allowed. So <laughs> I've been told this before. So, um, yeah. So that I, th- I think that, you know, I think the husbands should, that should be worked out between the couples. I think most husbands should be there. I think it's really good bonding for them to see how hard their woman works and, and what a miracle it is. And she's a, you know, she's a portal to the next generation. And it's really cool. I get emotional. So, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I know that one, one area where you have a lot of specialization and experience in is, um, is breach delivery. Can you tell me about that? My, my first birth was a C-section because I was told that it was completely unsafe to deliver a breech baby. And I know you have a different view of that, but I'm curious to hear more. Yeah, I hope what I say doesn't make you feel worse. <laughs> I, <think you're> <laughs> I kind of I reconciled that I had as much information as I had at the time. And uh, here, here we are, ready to learn more. Right. What you were told is incorrect. Okay. It may have been correct for that physician that, that if I help you with a breach delivery, it's, it's not safe. Right? <laughs> because that person doesn't know the skills to do breach delivery. And I... Do not blame your physician for not having the skills. What I would blame any physician is who doesn't have the skills is to then skew their counseling toward fear and danger about breach delivery because the literature doesn't support that. Mm-hmm. The literature doesn't say that. The literature talks about properly selected breach babies um, at term can safely be delivered vaginally with very little morbidity and no long term downside. Um, American College of OBGYN supports vaginal breach delivery. The Royal College supports vaginal breach delivery. The, the mortality rates um, generally that are highest or the are most that are accepted, the best accepted ones come from the Royal College of OBGYN, which is the British College. And they, they've rounded them out to make it easy for discussion because it gets into the it gets into the a thing that I discuss a lot, which is the difference between relative risk and actual risk. Mm-hmm. Something may be twice as risky as something else, but if the denominator is really small, it doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. An analogy in California is if something happened one time this year, it would be one in forty million. If it happened ten times next year, someone could say, "Wow, there's been a tenfold increase in this problem." But the actual risk is still one in four million, which is basically the same as one in forty million. There's really no statistical difference between the two. Mm-hmm. So the risk of a neonatal death, which is what everybody worries about with a breech birth, is, ab- is, is about one in 500. And, the, and so that's a 99.8% chance that it won't happen okay, at term. And the risk of a, a, neo, a neonatal death or a, um, with a C-section for breech is about one in 2000. So it's four times less. So that's about a 99.8% nine, five percent chance that it's not going to happen. All right. But that's not fair. It's not fair to compare breach vaginal delivery to a, which is done in varying different ways to a cesarean section, which is done the same way pretty much anywhere in the world. And it's done scheduled at 39 weeks or whatever, uh, you know, electively. So it would be better to compare breach vaginal birth mortality to head first baby mortality. That mm-hmm. makes more sense. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. risk of a head down baby having a, a neonatal death is about one in a thousand or maybe twice. It's the one half as much as breach. So it's 99.9 versus 99.8 is the risk that you're talking about. And for that, they're sectioning all breaches, right? So the fault doesn't really lie with the individual practitioner. The fault lies with the academicians who run my profession, who are not teaching a skill that that all academicians admit is a reasonable choice in skilled hands. But then ACOG goes on to say that since there are no skilled hands, most people will have a C-section. Yeah. But ACOG doesn't go on to say, we need to make more skilled hands. Yeah. And, and not only that, the irony of it is, is that midwives have been the torchbearers of this skill for a long time. And allowed. doctors are lobbying the individual states to make it illegal for women to, for midwives to do this skill. Yeah. So they don't do it. They don't want anyone else to do it. And that to me is, there's a, there's a disconnect between what's going on there. So, um, 
Yeah. So breach delivery is quite a reasonable uh, a choice. And if you don't know how to do it, the ethical thing to do is not to say it's terrible. The ethical thing to do is to say, listen, I don't know how to do it. But there's a doctor over at that hospital over there. And there's a doctor doing it. And I'm not a big advocate of home births, but there's that crazy guy, Dr. Fishbein, who does them at home. And then you got this guy over at Cedars and he does them. And maybe you should just have a consult with them. All right. And see what they say and then come back and we'll talk about it. That's really ethical. Yeah. Not ethical is to tell people that, oh, you know, your baby will die and it's, 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 it's no one does it anymore and it's dangerous. And the head will get stuck. All right. Because mm-hmm. that's wrong. That's, that's, they're either lying knowingly or they're not an expert and they shouldn't be giving advice on it. Yeah. What, what, what is the skill that's necessary? Like what, what, what is an, what is a, uh, what do other mammals do in this kind of predicament? What happens with the breech baby? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> they, don't, they don't, they don't have emergency. I mean, I, I think there are babies that are born breech in the wild. I, I don't know. I don't really know. That's a good question. I mean, what were you trying to get at with that question? Cause yeah, I guess I'm trying to understand what, what is the missing skill? Like why did this skill get lost? What's so hard about it? What, what needs to be no, done? It's really fascinating because the skill was dying in the late 20th century there was a there was a tendency not to want to do it and there were papers coming out from the 1950s 60s 70s and 80s that were mixed some some came out saying that properly selected breach is safe others were saying that there was higher morbidity and mortality and i guess it sort of just fell out of favor as cesarean section became so much more convenient and there's there are forces of there are financial forces there are forces of expediency Listen, it's much easier to schedule your C-section at 39 weeks at 7.30 in the morning on a Tuesday, all right, and be out of there by 8.15 than it is to wait for you to go into labor and maybe it's 10 o'clock on a Saturday night and now I got to be there because the hospital has a policy that says for breaches in labor, the doctor who's supporting that has to be there and I'm not getting paid any more from Blue Cross and Blue Shield to be there with you for 12 hours instead of the 45 minutes I was with you there when I did your C-section. So there's a lot of forces that that pushed it. There were obviously some bad outcomes with breech delivery, but you know what? It's really interesting. When there's bad outcomes with breech delivery, everybody says panics about breech delivery. And if they have a breech program, they'll shut it down or they'll put it on pause or something like that. But when there's a bad outcome with a head down delivery or a bad outcome with a cesarean, they never put cesareans on pause. Yeah. They never put head down deliveries on pause. Um, so there's a bias against it. And it's been built into the system. And then in 2000, uh, the famous paper, the term breach trial came out, which sort of codified the idea that it was safer to do babies by cesarean section than vaginal breach. But that paper and all the subsequent papers, that paper's own follow-up did not find any long-term damage to breach babies born vaginally. And all the papers since that time have found none or a slight increase in risk to breach babies, but nowhere near the extent to which that that the term breach trial did. So the term breach trial was an outlier. Mm-hmm. And yet it's the one that that people Our accept. Mm-hmm. Final word on the nail, the final nail in the coffin. And when I see people come to me for a breach consult mm-hmm. and they say, my doctor gave me this article about, about breach birth. And I see that the doctor gave them the term breach trial. It just tells me that that person has stopped learning over the last 20 years. They were told one thing at one point, it's convenient for them to keep that. And we're all guilty of that. We're all guilty of doing something the same way for a long time. And it makes it seem like it's the right way to do it. You think that hospitals are beginning to change, but you see, why were babies ever taken to the warmer? You know, why did we immediately cut the cord and, and show the mother the baby and then walk it over to the warmer? Why do we wash off a mom's bottom with iodine when she's having a vaginal birth? I mean, we don't, but... There's still hospitals that do that. They prep the woman's bottom as if it's as if you're about to take out her gallbladder. Um, you know, and, and we and you ask a nurse why they do it. Why are they giving newborn babies hepatitis vaccine ever? Okay. And you know, you know, why do you take the baby to the warmer? Well, we have to check the baby out. Well, why do you have to check the baby out? The baby's fine. All right. But they were told that. Yeah. And so that's the way it's been done. And people stop. Thing. And it's very uncomfortable to be, to have, to either see your foundation rocked or or your um, comfort go, go outside of your comfort zone. People don't like to do it. Yeah. yeah. Part of the reason that physicians like me 
and Brad Boots Taylor and a few other people around the country who advocate for breech birth and stuff like that find ourselves on the outside of a hospital privileges looking in is because we make a lot of people uncomfortable because we're honoring the the desires of the women we care for and we're and and we're not honoring the anxiety of the nursing staff who've been told by all the other doctors on staff that that breech birth is dangerous or twins birth is dangerous or or you know that sort of thing so it's very it's a very uncomfortable setting and it's and it's really hard to change and the and the system is what needs to change yeah you know if i was bill gates all right instead of having this crusade to do all the crazy things that bill gates is doing i would i would do something to improve the the maternity care system in america by taking normal birth out of the hospital yeah well this is right? our future generation we're talking about this is not you know it's not a small matter yeah i mean if you could take if you could take normal birthing out of the hospital like they took minor surgeries and 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 stuff and, and put and created surgery centers Surgery centers were more economically efficient. They were uh, they were they were easier to get in and out of as a patient. They were easier to get to deal with as a physician. And so then, what hospitals did they did what hospitals have to do when they're forced with that economic uh, competition is they either created their own surgery centers or they what they did mostly is they bought up surgery centers. Mm-hmm. So they did that, and so that what would happen? It's like what Whole Foods did to um, organic food. You know, food used to be food. When I was a kid growing up, food was food, okay? There were tomatoes. That was it. There were just tomatoes, okay? (laughs) Now there's like 65 kinds of tomatoes and there's organically grown tomatoes and super organic tomatoes and blah, blah, blah. And and so even in Ralph's or we have Ralph's or Vons out here, they're the basic, your basic Kroger market. Um, You know, they have an organic section now. Prior to, prior to Whole Foods, there was no organic food in a regular supermarket, but it made people compete. It made people change the way they do things. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to do because, because the status quo right now is not satisfactory. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying people should be, you know, leaving the hospital and giving birth at home. Home birth is for a unique group of people that either have had just, you know, have a history of, in their family of this sort of thing or have read about it and it's really what they've always desired or they had maybe a bad experience or someone a bad experience in a hospital and they want to do it. So maybe maybe 1% is too small. Maybe 4 or 5% would be fine. All right. But but the other 95% can't be having 80 to 90% epidural rates and pitocin rates and induction rates and and 35, 32% cesarean section rates and all that stuff. That system has to change. And again, I said it earlier, but the, I think I said it earlier. I say it a lot. <laughs> I don't know. But the problems we have in American obstetrics is not because 1% of women are giving birth at home. Right. Yeah. You did say that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, yeah. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to reiterate it because it's really yeah. important. No, that is really important that that's not where the problems lie. Right. There was a MANA study. They'll, they'll, they'll say, you get that you'll get these guys out there that don't like home birthing or whatever, and they'll publish articles that are anti-home birthing. Well, they'll completely ignore all the problems that go on in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or the so, problems with subsequent C-sections. If you just keep sectioning women, you you actually like kill their future chances of birth and you increase so many other risks. Yeah, of course you do. I mean, a, a really good source for that is uh, Jen Campbell's VBAC facts page. I don't know if you've ever been to vbacfacts.com, but she, yeah. she, she lists these things and she looks at talks of things like plen- the risk of placenta accreta after mm-hmm. two C-sections is, is yeah. higher than the risk of ruptured uterus. Yeah. But all you're talking about is uterine rupture. Right. Yeah. Right. They cherry pick the things they want to talk about to funnel you down the path, to skew the counseling, to funnel you down the path they want you to take. Yeah. That's what they, that's, that's what we do. And it's, and everyone has a bias. So this is not about eliminating bias in, in the consenting process. You can't, but you need to be self-aware of your bias and you need to let, let people know that you have a bias. Yeah. So that and makes then, me think of the, the, um, the concept of informed choice. Can you talk about that in the context of maternity care? How does informed choice show up or not show up? Well, in most of the cases, it doesn't show up. And getting back to the whole breach thing, I'll give you a perfect example of, of sort of this, the, the missing, the, 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 it's not the missing link, but it's, 
something's missing here because in the revised breach guidelines from ACOG, they, they still sub, uh, admit that in skilled hands, vaginal breach delivery of selected properly selected term breach in the hospital, of course, they say that because they don't let anything, they don't want anything out of the hospital is a, is a reasonable choice. But then they've added to the, the new one, they said, but, uh, but all the inf- risks and benefits of uh, breach delivery, all the risks of breach delivery should be discussed with the client in detail, which of course is true. But what's missing in their breach guidelines? Well, no, sen- no, not that. There, not that. But there's no sentence that says all the risks of a cesarean section oh. must also be discussed with the pregnant woman. It's not even in there. Okay, and it's like, no, you're going to recommend a cesarean, but you're going to tell her that it's safer than having a vaginal breach birth. But then you're not going to tell her the risks of, of the of the choice that you're trying to get her to ha- to take. With your directive counseling, it's another word. I it's a, a directive counseling is a really interesting term. It's sort of come into play now. Um, the same guys that don't like home birth, they're, 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 these guys, they they put an article out just recently. I'm going to talk about it on one of my podcasts coming up. Uh, a paper about how to directively counsel people to get the coronavirus vaccine when you're pregnant, wanting to become pregnant or breastfeeding, and directive. You know, the, uh, the AMA and ACOG have edicts against coercion. Okay, uh, let's say coercion of any form is not is not ethical. You should never do it, right? But directive counseling is is essentially subtle coercion. So I I I wrote a paper once called "Subtle Coercion Is Still Coercion" <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, it, it is. And if you skew your counseling, and again, we all skew our counseling. Everybody does, right? But ultimately, the decision in the shared decision making process can't be something which they've come now called to call professional responsibility ethics, which, which excuses you for giving skewed consent because you know what's right. You need to inform that patient so that she chooses that decision. Yeah, because she doesn't know what's right. Right, there are, there are a couple of pediatricians under fire in the country because they give informed consent and they actually have an informed consent thing on vaccines and their, their licenses are being either suspended or investigated by their medical boards because they can't comprehend how if you give people true informed consent that somebody wouldn't choose a vaccine. How is it that, how is it that half your clients are not choosing to be vaccinated? You must be doing something unethical. No, they're doing, they're doing the ethical thing by giving people information and letting and respecting the ability of them to make their own decision based on their own individual life experiences. One of the basic tenets of medical ethics is that no two people given the same information should be expected to reach the same conclusion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and yet mm-hmm. we, we funnel everybody into an algorithm in the hospital setting that everybody needs this and everybody needs that. And if you're not going fast, if you're not moving fast enough, you need to have this done and that done. And again, like I said, things are changing, but it's the academia, it's the academics of my profession that, that need a revision. Um, OB residents need to have a, a lot more teaching from midwives or generalist OBs than they do from maternal fetal medicine specialists. But the maternal fetal medicine specialists have taken over the training programs and they look at birth as a problem. And rightfully so. This is not, this is not a cut on maternal fetal medicine specialists because their specialty is obstetrical problems. Yeah. But they're not the ones that should be teaching residents all about obstetrics because 80 to 85% of women have no problem. Yeah. That's how I discovered midwifery. I I was looking for my first OB and I was so confused because every single OB would list their specialties. It was all problems. And I said, I don't have any of these problems. Why would I want to go to this person? I want to go to somebody who specializes in not problems. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And, And we become so dependent on maternal fetal medicine specialists in my profession that I don't think there's any woman that goes to an, well, that's, that's hyperbole. There are very few women that go to an OB, a regular OB, who sometime during their pregnancy are not referred to a maternal fetal medicine specialist, whether it's simply for the 12-week uh, 12, uh, 12 scan or the, the anatomy scan, or because their thyroid is a little off, or they're, they got a high blood sugar on their, so they're gestationally diabetic. You know, this is what we're trained as OB to practice, but now all these things are being referred to the specialists. 
Mm-hmm. And part of it is the system, because if I take care of a diabetic in pregnancy, I don't get paid any extra. Mm-hmm. But if I say to an internist who does diabetology, okay, he gets paid by the insurance company. I won't. For doing the same work, I don't get paid. So I understand my colleagues. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to take the extra time it takes to take care of a diabetic when I don't get paid for it, but he does or she does? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it gets farmed out and then Etsy and then everything eventually gets farmed out and everybody sort of wants to spread the, the liability around. Nobody's really confident anymore. A lot of people are, I mean, the fear in my, I'll, I'll end with this because the fear in my profession is really high. Yeah. And women in America, generally, if they're educated, will fear birth. All right. They're taught to fear birth, but who teaches them to fear birth? And I'm not talking about the blogs on Facebook. The, the medical community fears birth. And they project their anxiety in many different ways on the women of America who then fear birth. Yeah. And a good example of how that, why that I can say that that's fairly true is if you look at the Amish women, okay. Amish women don't have Facebook and they don't seek out obstetrical care and they don't fear birth. All right. They think of it as a part of their life cycle and they may even know someone who passed away in labor and they still have less fear of birth than your average West side, Los Angeles mother. Because we've got books and books and books and books and stuff about how birth is this and birth is that and birth is this. Because we've forgotten from the very beginning what we talked about, you know, what mammals know and we've forgotten. Okay. Right. So. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll, I'll leave it there. This was so helpful. Thank you. I feel like we touched on so many important points and form consent and breach delivery and the male energy within the space and just protecting your energy within space. So the primitive minds, that was important to me also. So I'm really grateful. Thank you. Is there, is there a way for people to find out more about your work that you could share with us? Sure. Uh, my website is birthinginstincts.com. All one, obviously all one word. And then uh, Instagram, I'm at birthing instincts. And uh, I have a book that's called fearless pregnancy. Um, that is uh Still, it was written, uh, the second edition was written in 2010. It's still really pertinent, except for the chapter on genetics, which has changed dramatically. So if you ever get that book, you can just skip the chapter on genetics. <laughs> just rip a, rip out those pages. <laughs> and then you can find me at Dr. Stu's podcast, or, or, or no, excuse me, it's not anymore. It's Birthing Instincts Podcast. We rebranded a few weeks ago. So oh, on your smartphone app or on iTunes, you can uh, download us, subscribe. Uh, give us a good review uh, on Birthing Instincts podcast. Um, Bliss Young, um, a licensed midwife, and I just sit and chat every time we meet and we talk about topics. And sometimes we go off on tangents and we have birth stories. And I think people find it really interesting. And I, I would love to have some feedback from some of the people that you uh, are in your group. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Take care. You're welcome. All right, Chaya.